Welcome to the Positivity Podcast, where we explore the skills and strategies of personal development with cutting-edge researchers, authors, entrepreneurs, and experts. Having more choices is a good thing, right? Barry Schwartz disagrees. As described in his TED Talk bio, his 2004 book, The Paradox of Choice, tackles one of the great mysteries of modern life. Why is it that in societies of great abundance, where individuals are offered more freedom and choice, whether it be personal, professional, or material, than ever before, are we now witnessing near-epidemic levels of depression? Conventional wisdom tells us that greater choice is for greater good, but Schwartz argues the opposite. He makes a compelling case that the abundance of choice in today's Western world is actually making us miserable. In this episode, we discuss how to simplify your choices around dating, prioritization, career, and how we should think about eliminating choice from our lives, as well as a practical framework to make better decisions. By the end of our conversation, I was rethinking how I go about my own life and had a practical lens to think less about choices that were less important to me. And goodness, does your head get more clear when you do that. Barry, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. So... To start, just so we're all on the same page, how would you define choice? Uh, when there is more than a single option available to you, you have a choice. Um, I, there's a sense in which you always have choice because you can always you can decide to do something or not to do something. But uh, I think, characteristically, you have a problem, you have a goal. You want to achieve the goal. There are multiple ways of achieving the goal. You choose one uh, from a set of however many. And so when I hear choice, the thing that comes to mind for me is freedom of choice. And I think that's something that's such a glorious aspect of America and the whole narrative of being an American and that we can choose our destiny, we can choose what we have for dinner, we can choose really every everything in their life. Um, and I know that you've written a lot about the, the paradox of choice and how at a first glance some of these choices um, can actually cause us challenge in the way that we live our life. I'd love to sort of hear your perspective on that and... and your thoughts? Well, sure. So what you just described is kind of the official ideology of America and most Western industrial societies. Um, choices, choice and freedom are two ways of saying the same thing. And the more freedom you have, the better off you are. So the more choice you have, the better off you are. And there's something profoundly true about that. That is to say, human beings are really not meant to live lives where they don't have choice. We want to be the authors of our lives, we want to be in control of our destinies, and if there's no choice, you can't be um, either in, in control of your destiny or the author of your life. The mistake that we've made collectively, and that psychologists have made in theorizing about what makes for uh, well-being, is that having acknowledged that choice is good, we've assumed that more choice must be better. So you can't have too much of a good thing. And my work, uh, largely built on research done by other people, is an argument that you can have too much of a good thing. And when you have too much choice, instead of being liberated by it, people are paralyzed by it. They can't pull the trigger, they end up doing nothing. Um, and so while there's no doubt that choice is good, too much choice is psychologically debilitating. And now the question is, what counts as too much? And the answer is, uh, nobody knows, except that we are certainly in the range of too much at the moment. Now, how many iPhone apps are there now on the market? 100 million, 20 million, 50 million? I, I probably can't give you 
account because it'll be inaccurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So imagine that you wanted to download the ten best apps. How long would it take you to find the ten best apps? We'd have to define what the best were. Well, assuming you knew for yeah. yourself what the best, the ten best apps for you. It would. It would probably take maybe seven, eight minutes just to. Seven or eight minutes to go through millions of apps? What, oh, to go, to go through and find them. Oh, yes. years, years. Years, years, years. And of course, by the time you finish, you'd have to start all over again because there'd be another 10 million apps. Yeah. <laughs> so if you're, you know, if, if you want a mapping program um, that'll get you from point A to point B, that's one thing. If you want the best program... That's another thing, and there probably aren't that many mapping programs. You could probably even figure that out, but imagine figuring out the best of every category. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it's, uh, it's defeating, and, uh, and so that's the world we now live in, and that's what my book's about. Why, why is it difficult for us to make these choices? I mean, if there's 18 different types of soy sauce, shouldn't I just be able to pick one, or you know, if I have two job offers... Can't I just do a cost-benefit analysis? Well, if you have two job offers, you probably can. If you have 18 job offers or you get admitted into 18 colleges, uh, the process of self-inflicted torture begins. Uh, yes, you can do a cost-benefit analysis. What features of the college, you know, soy sauce is not that complicated. Suppose it's where to go to college. What features of the college matter? How much do they matter? How good are the colleges with respect to each feature? How certain are you that you're about your assessment of the college with respect to each feature? It's a nightmare. And in addition, chances are pretty good that there's no clear winner, that the differences among candidates are pretty small. But somehow you figure if they went to the trouble of making all these different kinds of soy sauce or all these different colleges, there's a right one for me, and damn it, I'm going to find it. Mm -hmm. So you end up full of self-doubt. You pull the, you can't pull the trigger, or you do pull the trigger, and then you're full of regret that you made the wrong choice. Um, you're so worried that you will regret the decision you made, that you don't make any decision. Uh, it doesn't have to be that way. And in fact, one point I make in my book is that if you're looking for a good enough option, the choice problem is not so bad. You can look at the soy sauces one at a time, and as soon as you find one that's good enough, you choose it, and you just ignore the many, many others that you haven't even looked at. But there's increasingly a sense uh, uh, in people that good, we shouldn't be settling for good enough. We should be finding the best. Hmm. And then the problems become insurmountable. Hmm. So when it comes to good enough, what about choice is difficult for people. I mean, I, I can, <laughs> all that, that kind of waterfall of different thoughts of doubts and is it right? Is it, is it more difficult? You know, what, what about human nature makes choices like these difficult and what, and what takes us to a place where we can really feel like things are good enough? Well, the second question, what takes us to a place where we can really feel like things are good enough, nobody knows the answer to. Uh, my colleagues and I devised a scale that's sort of designed to measure people's general decision orientation. And there are people who score on this scale as what we call maximizers. They want the best. And then there are people who score as satisficers. They want good enough. Uh, how they got that way, we don't know. But they are that way. You can distinguish them. Hmm. And people who are maximizers, who are out for the best, are particularly plagued by large choice sets. Um, no matter what decision they make, they're worried that they made the wrong decision. No matter what decision they make, they think about all the attractive things they passed up and the options that they rejected. And the net result is that they're uh, less satisfied with their decisions than they, than they should be. This is true even when they make good decisions. It's not like they actually make mistakes. They may not make mistakes. It's just that they feel like they've made mistakes. Hmm. So I think we have a tendency to spend a lot of time asking, what if? I chose X, but what if I had chosen Y? You know, you're in a restaurant, you choose chicken, you see somebody at another table eating salmon, it looks really delicious, and all of a sudden your chicken tastes like cardboard. Why are people this way? I don't know the answer to that. 
Sometimes it's a good thing. To, it's good to be this way because you settle for something that's not very good and you see something across the way that's better. Next time you'll choose the better. So it's one way of gradually increasing your standards and learning from your mistakes. But what's bad is that you can't just shut it down. So even if you haven't made a mistake, you feel like you made a mistake. And I can imagine, you know, I have a lot of friends in uh, San Francisco in the Valley who I would definitely put more in the maximizer category. And I think in many ways that's what brought them success because they are always trying to figure out the better way to do it, better way to do it, better way to do it. Yeah. And it can be kind of crippling, you know. That's exactly right. You know, we have a study that shows that uh, of the college seniors looking for jobs and people who are maximizers get better jobs than people who are satisficers. Better now measured by starting salary, which was the only information we had. The study stopped after they had taken the jobs, but before they were actually working in them. So they got better jobs, significantly better jobs. The starting salary was 20% higher, and they felt worse about the jobs they got. They did better, and they felt worse. And I think this is the plague of, being a, of having unrealistically high standards. Yes, they will drive you to do better, but you'll always feel disappointed in how you've done. So the world may benefit from your being a maximizer, but you'll suffer. Hmm. Is there a way that... You know, I, I'm almost thinking about my own life and thinking about all the choices I have to make and wonder if there's some choices that I want to leave to the maximizer mentality and some choices to be the satisfied, satisfizer mentality. For example, yeah, yeah, yeah. when I'm buying soy sauce, I don't really like this. Yeah. This isn't worth my mental attention at all. <laughs> when I'm like buying a plane ticket and like, there's 857 options given. Like that's not like I, I'll give 10 minutes to making the choice, but nothing more. But, you know, when it comes to a way to, you know, better the function of our organization at make school or when it becomes like how to really what choices can I make that will make me, me become a better writer or podcaster. Those are like absolutely maximizer choices. Yeah, know? yeah. Well, it just – that makes perfectly good sense. The, 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 um, the impression that I have, partly from data and partly from talking to people, is that this is much less discretionary and volitional than you're making it. Uh, this maximizer orientation is something that a lot of people can't simply turn on and off. Uh, if, it, if people behave the way you described and they devoted only an amount of attention to a decision that the decision was worth, then there'd be no problem. Although even then, uh, you know, if you really are looking for the very best way to operate within your company, um, you might never do anything because the amount of time and, and attention you can give to thinking about the very best way to operate within your company is, is unlimited. Mm -hmm. You know, the only reason you don't do that is that you actually have to produce something for tomorrow. Yeah. You know, so the meter is running and you say, okay, I can't think about this anymore. I'm just going to go with the best I've gotten so far. Mm -hmm. So that practical constraint stops you. In the absence of that practical constraint, you could spend your whole life thinking about how to make this the best possible, how to make your work at this company as good as it could possibly be. What, this might be a really difficult question. <laughs> I say that because it would be really difficult for me. How can how can one go about really getting better at discerning what choices are are better to be uh, maximized versus satisfies? And I know you said that there's kind of a tendency that it's more of just a tendency. You are this way or you're not. But um, you know, I uh, look. Uh, people can change the way they make decisions. Nobody is a maximizer about everything. What that means is that you know how to settle. When it comes to soy sauce, maybe you just do pick the whatever one is cheapest. So you know how to do that. Uh, and, the, and then the task is merely to take a skill you already have and apply it in domains where you don't currently apply it, what we call transfer. And that's not as hard. It's not as hard to transfer a skill you already have to a new situation as it is to learn the new skill from the beginning. So it's possible to change. Uh, it may not be easy to change. Um, 
You know, I think a good rule of thumb is that is that you should devote time and effort to decisions in proportion to their importance. But the problem with that is that that actually is less helpful than it may sound, because you know, if you've gotten into Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, say, the truth is, it doesn't really matter which of them you choose. Because why do you say that? Well, one may be better than the other, but there's no way you're going to know it until you're there. The thing that's going to make one of them better than the other is stuff you can't anticipate. You know, who's your roommate in your first year of school? Do you develop a romantic relationship? How's the per how good is the person who teaches bio one? You can't know these things until you're there. Uh, they're all essentially asymptotically good places. So you might just as well flip a coin. And often, when we are trying to make choices about very consequential things, we invent distinctions because there really aren't distinctions to be made. The same thing, and, and the idea that we're doing it by some random process is, is un, intolerable to us. The same thing, by the way, is true when it comes to admissions, uh, uh, admissions offices choosing people for these very selective schools. They accept you know, 10% and they reject 90%, and half of the 90% they reject would be fine. They would do great. And they, they can't allow themselves to accept that it's basically a lottery. So they pretend to themselves that the people they're choosing are actually better than the people they're rejecting. This, this kind of also feeds into the American narrative that we're all always in control all the time. <laughs> you know, yes. I, I'm thinking, especially with this college example, I can totally relate to what you're saying about that the choice didn't matter to some extent um, because I knew that I had this GPA, I had these SAT scores, so I had these extracurriculars. It was very likely that I was going to get into this range of 30, 40 schools that I was applying to. And so many people, especially the community that I was from, place so much emphasis on where you got into. Yeah. You know, and... Of course, that makes a difference. I think it makes mo mo more of a difference to your ego than to a your actual life. I think that's right. At the end of the day, I knew like I have a tendency to, you know, make the most of situations and I'm really curious and they, like at the end of the day, they all have clubs. They all have like resources. That's what I'm saying. They're all basically the same. Yeah. But they spin a different story. You know, we're the Southern... You know, the weather makes us, you know, and so like, I, I think there's sort of a delusion about a lot of choices that they really matter because you put the choice of college in the bucket of this choice determines the next four years of my life. Right, so this is a four point. year, this, this is a decision on four years where we are like making, like we're living and it's, it's more of like the way we go about things than the choices we make that actually make a difference. But that's my point. You know, there's no question that choosing where to go to college is one of those important decisions where you'd want to have high standards and devote a lot of time and energy, right? This is not like choosing soy sauce. But if your choice is among candidates that are essentially equivalent, then it will be completely unproductive for you to try to decide which of those places is the right place. So it's not enough simply to say, if it's an important decision, devote lots of time and energy to it, if it's a trivial decision, don't. Sometimes even with important decisions, you're in a realm, uh, you're operating in a realm where the options are essentially equivalent to one another, and at that point, you should just flip a coin or go to whichever place is uh, closest to your family or whichever place is furthest away from your family or whichever place has the best weather. I mean, all these ridiculous reasons for choosing schools because the reasons that really matter don't distinguish them. Yeah. So I think that's that's what makes this uh, this challenging. That's why I said a few minutes ago that the, the advice to devote lots of time and energy to the important decisions, but not the unimportant ones, is less helpful than it may, yeah. than it may sound. Let's keep going with this example of college. Are there ways to make what seems like a massive, difficult decision easier? I mean, the the, the typical <laughs> sort of thing is make a t-chart for each of them, the pluses and the minuses, you know, what sort of frameworks or techniques or tactics can one use to simplify and deconstruct the choice making process so that 
they reach a better state of clarity? I would say the thing about colleges that makes it unusual is that you it's a it's a mutual choice situation. You're choosing them and they're choosing you. So, you know, I would say you've got a set of schools that are basically equivalent. Pick one and go to it. Nobody can do that because they may reject you. So you end up having to choose more than one just in case some accept you and some reject you. And then if you get into many of them, then you face the, this challenging decision. But often it's not that way. You know, you don't have to worry about being rejected by your option. So I would say a good simplifying strategy is to sit down and figure out what's most important to you in a decision and then choose the first option that meets your standards with respect to what's most important to you. How if what's you... most important to you when you're buying a car is uh, reliability, you choose the first uh, the first car that has, a, according to Consumer Reports or something like that, a frequency of repair record that indicates that it's a reliable car. You don't worry what you're leaving on the table by not looking at other cars. How do you figure out what's most important to you? I mean, I, I say this as someone in their mid-20s who <laughs> the, whole, the whole world's ahead of me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You Listen, know, like, you're going to make mistakes. You're going to make mistakes. You can, you think you know what's most important to you, and sometimes you're right, and sometimes you'll be wrong. Or what's most important to you now isn't going to be what's most important to you three years from now. And a decision like buying a car is a decision you have to live with for a while. So this, there's no guarantee that if you follow any particular set of advice, you're never you're always going to get get the right result. Yeah, you're right. It, but the point is, if you don't know what's most important to you, who the hell does? Yeah. There have been decisions I've made that have really been like, heck yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely doing this. And then there's been decisions that have been like, okay, I, 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 this, this sort of feels right. I, I've thought about this for two weeks now. I, I just have to make a decision. Okay, I'll go. In, in those scenarios and I guess in all sort of choices – what role does doubt play in choice making and, and how, how do we kind of understand that in intuition? Well, doubt may, has a huge role to play, but sometimes doubt, it resides in the person. You just, you're the kind of person who has a hard time being confident it, it, with the decisions you make. Um, and sometimes the doubt is in the world because there's, Every decision we make is a prediction about the future. Every prediction you make about the future is probabilistic. There's nothing certain about the future. What, you know, you choose a restaurant and it may be having an off night. You choose a car and it may not handle as well as you'd hope. So you're making predictions. The predictions can be wrong. And you're choosing among candidates that are often incredibly close together in quality. And if you know that, then it's just a situation that's built to create self-doubt. Hmm. And the more thoroughly you investigate, the more doubtful you'll be. That's another paradox. You know, if you don't look at every car, you won't have any doubt that a Toyota Camry is the right car for you. But if you look at every car, well, now, you know, Honda's got its equivalent, and Kia's got its equivalent, and Nissan got, has got its equivalent. What the hell's the difference among these things? Who the hell knows? So how can you choose the Toyota Camry and be confident that you made the right choice? So doubt is built into now to the situation, not into you, but the fact that you have these candidates that are essentially equivalent. Mm -hmm. Except you won't accept it. If you really believe that they were equivalent, you just flip a coin. So you think somehow there must be a difference. I just can't figure out what the difference is. Yeah. So... Could you maybe dig a bit more deeper into the paradox of doubt? Well, the paradox is we all think that wise consumers, smart consumers, do their research. They look at the options. They look at the features that matter about all the options. They do this analysis. They create a spreadsheet and in that way determine which car, which restaurant, which vacation, which college, whatever, is the right one for them. 
And going with your gut, well, that's a sign of being a bad consumer. You need to put time, effort, and analysis into it. And that's the right way to make choices. And what I'm saying is the more of that you do in many domains, the more doubtful you'll be of whatever decision you make because what will be apparent to you is how interchangeable the various options are. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense because. But you don't come to that conclusion. You don't come to the conclusion. There's no difference between the the Nissan, the Kia, the Toyota, and the Honda. If you came to that conclusion, then you'd be fine. You flip a coin, or you go, we buy whichever one is cheapest, or whichever one is most convenient to get serviced, or something like that. But instead, you tell yourself they can't be equivalent. One must be better than the others. Damn it! I can't figure out which one. Mm -hmm. And now. The seeds of doubt have been planted. And you're almost in a, a place of sort of chronic indecision. Exactly. You're in a place of chronic indecision. And, you know, I, have a, I had a former student who needed to replace his mattress. Um, and he's a, just a prototypical maximizer. He wanted the best mattress. And he had back trouble. It really mattered. He spent four months looking for a mattress. He ended up never buying a mattress because he couldn't figure out which mattress to buy. And he's sleeping on this horrible, lumpy, soft mattress with creas making the back pain worse, but he just couldn't figure out which one to buy. And I assure you, he looked at a dozen, any one of which would have been fine. And you see this now in the, in the social domain with um, you know, social network type stuff. Uh, you know, people get the chance to meet, in some sense of meet, an infinite number of potential romantic partners. And I think this leads to an almost total paralysis when it comes to making commitments. Mm. Um, this was not a problem um, 40 years ago when you sort of felt lucky if you found one, one person you could imagine, you know, that you're interested in, who you could imagine is interested in you. Now you just go to Tinder and you see thousands and thousands and thousands. And you know, which one do you select? <clears throat> I can definitely relate. I mean, I went to uh, school in Michigan. And in Michigan, there's a lot of towns that have a couple thousand people. And, you know, at University of Michigan, you get people coming from those towns. You get people coming from New York City. And it was really interesting. My friends who sort of came from the small towns and then decided that they wanted to live that small town life, they'd grow up and they'd, they'd meet maybe a couple dozen potential mates. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you meet and then you, you find one out of the selection and, and it kind of goes well. Um, and a couple or, of dozen is a lot. Yeah. I think it's a high estimate. So you went to the University of Michigan? Yes. My yes. niece and nephew both went to the University of Michigan. Oh, cool. They're, I think they're, I know they're older than you are. Um, they loved it. Awesome. Yeah, I don't think I, I dated uh, your niece. In, <laughs> I'm just well, kidding. My niece is probably 45. Okay, yeah. Then, well, I'm sure you didn't date her. Um, well, actually, I'm just kidding. No, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that like for a maximizer, dating in the modern world is overwhelming. It's incredibly yeah. overwhelming, and it, and it, it it leads to lack of doing anything because you're just so uncertain about everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's even a word for it that's in the Oxford English Dictionary: FOMO. Yeah, yeah. This Very... captures the modern problem. Yeah. Uh, and there's a lovely book that's mostly funny but also serious by the comedian Aziz Ansari called Modern Romance. Huh. It's a it's a bestseller. And it really is about the problems of dating that are posed by modern social network availability. Uh, you know, and he, he's not, he doesn't go quite so far as to say it was better when there were only, you know, you, you married somebody who lived on your block. But he, he does go so far as to say it's not obviously an improvement to have an infinite number of potential yeah. romantic partners. You know, it, it's interesting. Um, we had Cal Newport on the podcast earlier. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work. He he talks a lot about job satisfaction, and he says that what it, it's less of what you do; it's more of how you do it that makes it satisfying. 
yeah. in that, you know, the choice isn't as important uh, as how you do it. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about with college. You know, it, it's less about if you choose Harvard, Yale, or Princeton. It's more of what you do while you're there. That makes yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a difference. I don't. I mean, I agree with him yeah. to some degree, or at least your characterization of him. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's a difference between Harvard, Yale, or Princeton on the one hand, and say Westchester State on the other, to choose a place that's near Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying Westchester State is bad, but the opportunities that uh, are available to students at places like Westchester State, that is to say the overwhelming majority of schools, yeah. are nothing like the opportunities that are available at Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. So I think, to relate this to the jobs, yes, your attitude to the work matters a lot, and it's going to influence the way in which you do it, the how, mm -hmm. how matters. But there are some jobs where even the best attitude is going to be defeated because there's something in the structure of the job that makes it almost impossible for people to get satisfaction out of it. Yeah. You know, people can be miserable with great jobs and people can be pretty happy with, uh, with terrible ones. But for the most part, the quality of the work is going to have an impact on how you, on how you do the work. Um, and you can't talk yourself into turning a bad job into a good one. Yeah. And so it almost seems like for the example of colleges and jobs, it's, it's that um, there's obviously a difference in the choice you make between um, a school that has X number of resources versus Y number of resources. But, you know, if it's, <laughs> you know, to, to make up arbitrary numbers between Yale, Princeton, and Harvard, it's... Like the difference, it might be like one, like a thousand. If you're just to make it on a number scale, it would be like you know a nine point three versus a nine point four, and like that's like the number. That's my and, point. And the amount of effort you put towards making that point one difference is less important than <laughs> what you're doing there. And, that's and, right. So so this kind yeah. of attention to your work and how to make it as good as possible or to or what work to choose or to where to go to school makes sense mm -hmm. when you're when you're choosing across categories. So for example, it makes sense to think long and hard about whether to go to a place like Michigan or a place like Swarthmore. They're fundamentally different experiences. Mm -hmm. You know, Michigan has whatever, forty thousand students, Swarthmore has fourteen hundred. It's gonna be a very different experience. Yeah. But if, if you get into six schools that are like Swarthmore, which one you go to isn't going to make much difference. If you get into six schools like Michigan, which one you go to isn't going to make much difference. So some, some attention to important decisions makes sense. But this obsessive attention that is what people devote because they think they have to choose the best is almost certainly counterproductive. There's a cartoon I show when I talk about this of a young woman wearing a sweatshirt that says brown parentheses but my first choice was Yale. <laughs> now if you have that sweatshirt in your head as you start school at Brown you're not gonna have a great time at Brown. You're gonna spend all your time at Brown thinking about how much better things would be if only you would gotten into Yale. Yeah. The result of course is gonna be that Brown's not gonna be very good for you because you can't throw yourself into it and get everything out of it that's that's uh, possible. So for that student, what what sort of perspective do you have on people who might feel regret about their choices? Well, you know, my book says regret less, but I but my book does not say don't How? regret. <laughs> well, that's another matter. How yeah. well one way to regret less is to examine fewer options, which I also recommend. You know, I say arbitrarily, you're going to set a limit of three stores or three websites. That's all, or sometimes don't choose at all. You need a new cell phone, talk to your friend who recently bought one. Say, do you like the one you got? Yes, get the same one. So you're not even, you're not making any comparisons. You're letting your, your friend has done the work for you. Uh, and, you know, chances are pretty good that that works fine. Um, the difference in quality between Android and Apple and the difference in quality between this year's Apple and last year's Apple, only somebody with way too much time on their hands would care about these things. 
uh, you know, these phones are just uh, just off the charts spectacular, and it doesn't make a damn bit of difference which yeah. one you choose. But try convincing somebody that that's true. You know, the phone is the center of their universe. You can't convince them yeah. that there isn't a right choice. And so much of it, too, is just overcomplicating things that don't need to be overcomplicated. Yes. That phone choice. I mean, so I actually, in my personal life, I had an epiphany regarding this about dating. You know, I had been, I've definitely fallen to what Aziz <laughs> said in his book about there's just too many choices. And especially for someone who has a maximizer mentality, it's hard to date someone when you think, you know, you, you said the Yale and Brown, it's like I'm at Brown because I wish I could get into Yale. That, that is poisonous to your college yeah, experience. Yeah, of course it is. You spend the that. evening at the bar thinking about how much better the other person would have been. Yeah, and, and it's poisonous for for the for dating too. And so, you know, I, I had this epiphany where I, I was like, dating is so complex and it's just there's just like so much like so much knowns and unknowns and doubts and it's like it's hard to even start because I don't even know what I'm looking for. And then I had like this really sort of clarity that if I had selection criteria, I know it sounds silly to say this with people, but for what, who I would want to date, it would be someone who is really into their own personal growth and bettering the world and they're, you know, have healthy habits, they, they're supportive as a person and they, you know, I just gut feeling feel attracted to them and we laugh and learn and love together. And like, mm -hmm. that's kind that's, that's kind of common in a lot of people. And like, as long as I have that, then I think it's good enough, <laughs> you know? Well, that's quite a lot. <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's too much. But there's another point that he makes that, that I think is really quite profound. Many of the attributes you just described take time to show themselves in a person. Yeah. You know, you make it a date to have a drink and maybe dinner. And, you know, in, an, in a Tinder world, it's basically show me, give me your, give it your best shot because you've only got this evening. And sometimes what's most important about people and most, most endearing about people emerges over time. If you're not prepared to, de to put time into developing the relationship, you'll never see those attributes. And in a, day, in, in a time when you know, you're going to have a half a dozen potential partners, uh, you'll put in the time because there there's not a long list line of people with, waiting. You know? But in the modern world, why would you put in the time? Yeah. So you end up choosing on the basis of really quite superficial attributes. Um, uh, and people rarely get the opportunity to show one another their best selves. And I, so he makes this point. I think he's absolutely right. Um, and and it just, uh, it's just, it's another respect in which having this feeling that choice set is unlimited leads people now not to be paralyzed, but to, um, but to make bad decisions and then not stick with them. Yeah, it's funny. I had, I had a friend who... Similarly, he, he has a little saying that people don't wait long enough for relationships to develop and they stay, yep. too, they stay too long in relationships when they're not going well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Well, those are different things. You know, it's hard yeah. to extricate yourself from relationships. It's going to be painful, um, hurtful, and you really want to be sure that this is the right thing to do before you inflict pain on somebody that you were very close to. But the, the first thing, the not investing enough time in developing relationships is, I think, right out of the, the phenomenon that uh, uh, Ansari was writing about. You didn't have this. This was not a problem 25 years ago. And it's funny because I think, you know, let's just take the first three dates with someone. Um, I, I think... We live in, like, the norms of our media are very sensationalist and very dramatic and eye-catching. And I think that sometimes that filters into the way that we hope or the expectations we have for dating. Because mm -hmm. you're hoping that that first date is going to be this dynamite sort of exposition of the, the, these amazingly wild, almost eccentric qualities in someone. 
um, that you, you feel like right from the start, it's going to, you know, be fireworks, but, yeah. but like that, that's not always the case. And like, it's it, hardly ever the case, Yeah, <laughs> but it's, you know, this, it's this romantic picture that's been presented to us. And again, this, this kind of romantic picture has been presented to us for years. But when, the, when everyone knew that the choice set was limited, people just uh, would just resign to, you know, well, maybe that's going to happen to somebody. It's not going to happen to me. But when the choice set is unlimited, I think this romantic image has a much bigger hold on how we actually proceed. Yeah, this, I don't feel the sparks with this person. Maybe the next or the next or the next. Yeah. So I, I think, um, I think, you know, there's an old saying: "Be careful what you wish for." Uh, people have, people are young people. People your age are getting what they wish for, and I'm not so sure they're going to make out okay with it. What, what did we wish for? Just endless unlimited options. You know, variety. Somewhere out there is the perfect person, and thanks to Tinder, I'm going to be. Able, I'm actually able to find it. Whereas. You know, my poor parents were stuck with each other because they grew up in Ann Arbor and how many people were there after all to meet in Ann Arbor. Yeah. So, you know, I have it. I, my life is so much better than theirs. I will never settle for somebody like the person my dad settled for. <laughs> you know, I can hear people having these thoughts. Yeah. It's funny. You said, uh, <laughs> I love this line you said. You started off the sentence saying, in a Tinder world, that sounds like the first line of a horror movie. <laughs> it does. In a, in a Tinder, everything. You can hear the guy is, with the deep voice doing, uh, doing the, um, the trailer for in a, it. In a Tinder world. Yes, perfect. Could, couldn't you imagine an app for everything? Like, app for like conversations with your friends. Do I want to do this? No. Like, do I want to have this conversation? Like, it, it could be endless. Um, but I mean, that's, that's, I'm, I'm learning a lot in terms of, how to think about things and you know, like obviously sparks need to fly at some point in the relationship, but maybe after the third or fourth time hanging out, cause people need to warm up, you know? Exactly. I mean, sometimes the sparks fly after you've rubbed the two sticks together for a while. <laughs> and if you're not around long enough to rub the two sticks together, the sparks never fly. Yeah. So one of the things that uh, I like to do towards the end of the podcast is kind of, distill down some of the things that the amazing guests have said and kind of turn it into a playbook for someone who has listened to this episode and has thought, wow, yeah, that's a really good point thing you made about doubt. I really like the point about college, like really figuring out what decisions are important or not. So I'd love to kind of uh, sort of map out some of the things that people can do to manage this stuff better and design their life in a way to really take hold of, of some of the, the points you made and, and just really just ease themselves from the unnecessary decisions, sure. feel more confident in their decisions. So I'll be happy to give you a little list. Okay, yeah, feel free to run with it. So first, choose when to choose. Sometimes let other people choose for you. Second, arbitrary lim- arbitrarily limit the number of options you consider. No matter how easy it is to, to, to click show all, don't click the show all button on the website. Three, most important, uh, adopt the attitude that good enough is virtually always good enough. Be a satisficer rather than a maximizer. Those, I think, are the key takeaway. Mm-hmm. messages. I don't want to say don't regret, don't look backward. I think regret is an important emotion. So regret less, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. Compare yourself to other people less. Yeah. And so I have these three tips. I have 300 choices I'm going to be making. I was going to say within the next week, but I almost, I would almost probably say within the next day. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's there's certain things that I want to kind of phase out. Like I, I'm, I probably want to make less choices about what I eat 
just because that's not where I want to like have my energy drain and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So like choosing when to choose and choosing when to let others choose. If I, if people have a long list of their choices, how, how should we sort of think about what, what we should discern as our own choices versus others choices? I think generally um, it's, you should take advantage of the fact that people you know have already faced this decision and made it. And just, uh, you know, query them and if they're satisfied with how their decision worked out, do what they did. And I think it's fine for you to decide, you know, come to the conclusion, I don't really care much about food. I'll learn a few things about what's good for me and what's not good for me. And then I'll basically just eat the same thing. You know, I'll have three meals that I alternate, three dinners. And every week when I go shopping, I'll ignore the 80,000 items in the supermarket and just choose the things that I've decided um, will be my uh, dinner food. And I'll devote myself to other things. What's what wrong with that? What are the characteristics you'd suggest for things that you you ultimately want to make the decisions on or really spend a lot of time thinking about? Is it the things with the biggest deltas between the choices? Well, that matters, except you often don't know how big the deltas are until after you've already invested a huge amount of time. Yeah. You know, you don't know in advance that there really is a huge difference between options. You yeah. find that out after already committing yourself. I would say that when you're choosing things, it's rarely worth the kind of effort that a maximizer would make. When you're choosing activities, it more often is worth the effort. What, could you give some example? I mean, like going to like where to where to study, where to be a student, where, what kind of work to do, what job to take. You're not just choosing an object; you're choosing a way of life, yeah. and choosing a way of life is worth giving serious thought to. Yeah, choosing objects is rarely worth giving serious thought to. And and the things that are repeated choices, such as studying, um, and food, I could see it being very useful to <clears throat> automate them. So it's I yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, the nice thing about repeated choices is that they tend to be lower stakes, and you make one, and you discover you made a mistake, and you correct the mistake. You know, you bought a cereal you don't like. Big deal. You throw it out, you threw, you wasted three bucks, you buy a different cereal next week. Yeah. It's the decisions that you, you tend to make only a few times in your life where you can't so be so cavalier about making mistakes and then learning from them. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, and, and with a lot of things, uh, you know, you choose things, you will have multiple opportunities to choose things in a given category. Even if you end up buying the wrong car and you're stuck with it for six or seven years, it's not so much the wrong car. It's just a little bit the wrong car. It'll yeah. work. It'll get you from point A to point B. Yeah. And you won't buy that kind of car again next time. <laughs> yeah. It almost seems like the ironic thing about this podcast is we're spending so much time talking about choice, but a lot of it is to kind of draw back from a lot of the choices. That's what I think. But it's hard to do that because, the, as you said earlier, the ideology of, of our culture is such that it seems un-American to draw back from choice. Yeah. You know, that's why our fathers, our fathers and grandfathers died so that we could do Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> it's a horrible thing to, to contemplate, but it's, you know, that, I'm sure that, there are people who will say that. That's the second line of our horror movie about Tinder. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so for anybody in the audience who is feeling overwhelmed by this podcast now reevaluating and thinking about so many of the choices that, they act, that actually exist, it seems like the advice is to really just let the choices that don't really matter in the long run be. And just yes. make it and move on. Move on. And and for those that really have high stakes and high deltas between options, um, take some time with them. Really think about your selection criteria of what's important and get perspectives from other people around you. All um, that is true. Yeah. But still, 
you don't need to get make the best choice. You just need to make a good enough choice, even when it's important. Yeah. What do you have any other thoughts or tips on elimination, um, or eliminating choices and? Well, I think you know habits are what save us, and uh, most of the time we. Uh, we do things habitually without even realizing that we're doing them habitually, and that's fine. You know, I Starbucks, I don't know, there are probably four million different drinks you could construct from the Starbucks menu. I've gone to Starbucks, I don't know, a couple thousand times since it's come into existence. I always get the same thing. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm concerned, Starbucks only has one kind of drink. Yeah, I won't spend five seconds thinking about whether I might enjoy another drink more. Mm-hmm. I really like this one, and and so everything else there is invisible to me. Yeah. Some people may care more about that than I do, but I think mostly people care too much rather than too little about uh, relatively unimportant things. Any resources that people should check out, whether it be articles or sites um, that you think are helpful in helping people make progress on this topic? Well, my book, um, which is not really a self-help book, at the insistence of the publisher, the last chapter of the book is a list of tips with some explanation for why I think these are good tips. Um, so I gave a TED talk on this topic, but that didn't have any of the tips. It was just a discussion of why choice can become a problem. But the book has a chapter, you know, uh, that we is designed to make it help to be helpful to people as they face uh, essentially unlimited choice. Um, I hate to toot my own horn, but I think that's as good a resource for people to go to as I know of. Awesome, and we'll, we'll make sure to link to it on the on the blog. Um, Good. Any other final thoughts? No. Nope. Or... Take care. I think it's very. Bye bye.